Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, please consider making a donation. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. All right, welcome to another edition of your favorite podcast. (laughs) Certainly my favorite podcast. <laughs> I was talking to John when I said that. Not, oh, okay, not yeah. you, not you listeners. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. It's good to be with you guys again. Um, this week, we kind of alluded to this last week, but this week is what we feel is a really, really important topic, especially right now um, with a lot of the, the, the stuff that we've seen happening in the news that um, is kind of disconcerting and, and, you know, just kind of kind of bums you out a little bit. There's been a lot of stuff um, with you know racial tensions and that sort of thing. It's uh, been a year, yeah, of unprecedented racial tension. Yeah, marked back in the shootings. news like every day. Yeah, and it's uh, you know it's concerning. Certainly. The election has brought a lot out. Yeah, and and probably more is going to come out. Yeah, so this is uh, this is one of those topics where um, you know we have a lot of brothers and sisters out there who who don't happen to look just like us and don't necessarily come from the same place that we came from. And, um, and, and for them, I think, uh, we really felt this weighing heavily on us to really do an episode that addresses some of those, some of those issues that are not just uh, a matter of, um, not understanding maybe, uh, the history or, um, you know, maybe the different, uh, cultural, uh, you know, differences between us and them, um, but but really something that's deeply intertwined in the structure of society and and think something you know so our guest this week talks a lot about um, kind of historically where this difference um, in, in race comes from and mm, yeah. and just just what a systemic issue it is and it's it's really a lot more complicated than even I ever gave it credit for. Systemic is the perfect word for this issue. And what is what most people don't realize is a system issue. Yeah. So we uh, we actually had the uh, the benefit of um, a guest that we had on a while back, um, who who we really enjoyed, who connected us with with this uh, particular guest this week. Uh, I mean, that's right, Doctor Doctor Sharon Putt. Yeah, connected us with uh, our guest this week. Who was our guest this week? This is Doctor Drew Hart. Uh, Doctor Drew Hart is he is a uh, professor. Uh, Messiah College out in Pennsylvania. Um, he is currently, um, uh, I guess, promoting uh, his latest book, um, which I cannot hi- recommend highly enough. I-, I just was blown away by this book. It's called Trouble I've Seen. Um, it is outstanding. Oh, man. I mean, it. I think we talk about it a little bit in the episode, but it just brings to light um, aspects of, of you know, racism and racial tension that I hadn't even considered before. In a gracious, um, well-researched, um, comprehensive but accessible way, 
uh, I just, you're in such good hands listening to someone like Drew Hart about this issue. And um, hopefully this episode is a conversation starter because one of the things that comes up all the time around this issue, especially when, when you're talking to people about change and it's, you know, what, well, what can we do? What can we do? You know, it's such a, such a big problem. First thing we can do is learn how to talk about it better. Yes. And especially if you're listening to this podcast and you are um, fair-skinned, you're white, you, you know, middle class at least, uh, you don't even know what privilege um, you are in and, and even what that means, what the, what the word privilege even means. So one of the great things you're going to love about what, how Drew presents ideas in his book and in this conversation is the verbiage that he sort of demystifies and just brings down to a really concrete, graspable, graspable level. Uh, what does it mean? What does whiteness mean? What does racial tension mean? What, you know, what's with this Black Lives Matter thing? What's, what is with all this stuff? And how does, it, yeah. how does it come into the conversation around Christianity? And nothing, nothing we're happier to try to help deconstruct a little bit than this. Yeah, and uh, and so we, we like to point out that this is an episode actually that we had originally planned as part of a series um, early 2017, and and we still have full intentions on on following through with that series. However, um, just felt like it was really important for us to push this one forward and and at least get the the uh, the conversation started. Um, so you're going to hear some familiar music as well um, by a band that we love uh, called The Brilliance. Uh, mm-hmm. Some new stuff mm-hmm. by them. Um, it just felt appropriate. And also at the end, um, you're going to notice, um, I just, we just encourage you to listen through the end. Um, so normally if you don't like our babbling at the end during the outro, um, it's fine. We don't take offense to it, but this week, um, instead of us, uh, kind of trying to, um, recap everything that we've just talked about, um, we felt like it, it might be a little bit more genuine to, to just have some people who have, um, been on the receiving end of racism, firsthand kind of just tell some of their stories and the really sad and unfortunate thing is we didn't even have to reach out to people outside of our own group of friends um to find some just really um heartbreaking stories and so i just encourage you guys to to follow through the end um listen to a couple of these stories and and just think about you know the 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 time frame that these occurred in and and the the geographical locations i think the important thing we want to point out is that this is not something that just happens um, in the deep South or something that happens in 1960s, you know, Birmingham or whatever, you know, kind of that stereotypical idea of where and when racism occurs. Um, this stuff is happening everywhere and it's happening now. Um, so we, we hope you take something away from, from the outro today. I think that's, I think that'll just about do it. Yeah. So uh, without further ado, Dr. Drew. Drew. Freaking heart. Well, Drew Hart, man, uh, what a what a great time to have you on. We are. Uh, really excited about this really, really important podcast. Thank you so much for giving your time. Thank you for writing an incredible book. We can't wait to talk about it. Um, thank you so much for being with us today on the Deconstructionist Podcast. 
Oh, awesome. I'm just glad to be here and dialogue with you. I've heard great things about this podcast. I'm glad to enter into conversation. Oh, thank you. Thanks, man. <laughs> uh, so one thing that we like to do when we first kick off a, an episode, especially if you're a first time guest on the show, is uh, maybe talk a little bit about your background and how you ended up in the work that you do today. Yeah, that's, I'll try not to make this a long story. I can start with a nice summer day in June, 1982, but, um, um, I was born, I'm a, I was born in 82, so I'm a millennial, um, from Philly and let's see, I grew up in the church, um, and that was deeply formational for me, you know, just growing up in the church, uh, uh African-American uh, congregation and um, just a place that uh, gave, received, shared love and affirmed me and affirmed my identity and my gifts and kind of sent me out into the world. Yeah. And then um, when I was 18, going to college, actually before I went to college, I should say I briefly, um, 10th through 12th grade, I, I went to a white suburban school outside of Philadelphia um, and had to kind of make sense of being a racial minority in this huge, it was a school that had 3,000 kids, 10th through 12th grade. And uh, But during that time, I actually um, kind of felt a sense of calling and wanted to really pursue ministry and, and ended up uh, applying to Messiah College and uh, got accepted there and did uh, biblical studies. And while I was at Messiah, I... I struggled there. Um, mm. I struggled there because Messiah, uh, I had the perception that, you know, this was just going to be, you know, just a wonderful time with my brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, and I was really <laughs> looking forward to it. And I kind of look back thinking about how naive I was, but, um, but that's sure. was my expectations going in. And then, uh, what I found strangely was that this space was, um, a deeply racialized and at times racist space, right? Um, Ooh, interesting. And and I say that not in like the KKK racist, but that there was just this constant barrage of racial stereotypes and comments, and um, and I, I realized how how often people feared me at times um, when they didn't know me very well, and so just making sense of that um, forced me to ask some deep questions around. Uh, you know, how in the world could my time within this Christian community, these kind, really nice people, how how that could have been one of the most uh, <sighs> thoroughly racialized spaces that I'd ever been in before, right? Wow, yeah. That, that, that it caused all kinds of deep questions and struggles internally for me, um, kind of experiencing that in many ways that put me on a new trajectory. Um, cause that time I was studying biblical studies at Messiah from that point on, you know, um, I just moved more and more towards asking, um, more theological questions and kind of wrestling with, um, the church in the West and what it has become and how it got deeply, deeply entangled within, um, kind of racial logics and ways of being. Um, and in some, in many ways, as I, you know, began to do my history, it was, you know, 400 years of the church deeply entangled in this, right? Yeah. Uh, so 
And so I guess a lot of my work, particularly in, as it relates to um, at least um, my work with race and racism, um, kind of has its origins in kind of the both uh, pains and joys of being in a white Christian community um, and kind of making sense of my experience at that time. So I guess uh, that's usually kind of the way I kind of articulate my path. I mean, there's more I could add, but I think that's a helpful starting point. That's a definitely, that's a very helpful starting point, man. Um, uh, one, of, one of the things that you kind of mentioned at the beginning of your book, and by the way, uh, people need to go out and get this book. It's incredible. It's called Trouble I've Seen, um, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. Um, really, uh, as a white, what I would consider a white middle-class male, um, really just kind of challenge my, 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 my preconceived notions, my, my, uh, viewpoints that I had going into it and, and really, you know, thinking that, Hey, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a racist man. You know, I, I love all my brothers and sisters and, and still coming away from this book, like, Oh my gosh, I, I have so much work to do, you know? Um, so I, I think, uh, I think this is beneficial to a lot of people out there who, who really need to read this and, and kind of see some of the perspectives that you provide in here. Uh, but one of the things I really want to talk about, there's a situation earlier in your life that you talk about in the book where you're going on a, a road trip out to Washington State, I believe. Right. And while you're there, uh, something happens to your brother that kind of shatters your, the framework of uh, kind of what you had, had thought about uh, racial relations up until that point, I think. So maybe you could talk about that a, a little bit and, and kind of how that changed your view on, on the reality of the situation. Yeah. So, I mean, as you mentioned, I had been on this road trip. Um, I kind of joke often that I was kind of frolicking as a, you know, college student, you know, carefree in the world <laughs> with friends and, and during that time. So there we are, you know, we're um, asking deep questions and solving the problems of the world together and, you know, um, dialoguing about who knows what. And, and I get a phone call from my mom and I find out that uh, my brother had been, my older brother, who he's a year older than me. I grew up with him. I grew up, we shared a room. I got hand-me-downs, everything, right? Our lives were pretty bound together at that time in our life. And so um get a phone call that he had um, been hanging out with some friends. All of them were African-American. And uh, a cop drives by, drives by again. And the third time comes out and stops and they immediately arrest him because he fit the description. But the only description that they gave was a black male with a black T-shirt and blue jeans. Oh. Uh, we did find that. We found that out later. That wasn't immediately what we found out. But um, we yeah. found out the only description, you know, no height, no complexion, no anything else. Black male, black T-shirt, blue jeans. Uh, and, you know, I'll be honest, like it, it wasn't that I didn't know that these kind of things happened. Um, I was aware that they happened to other people, right? right. right. Oh, man. Uh, there's a problem out there. Um, what what this happened, what happened with my brother is that, you know, through this process, you know, he kind of went through the system. He actually spent almost four months locked up uh, pre-trial before they eventually, you know, they put him in the lineup and realized that, you know, obviously this isn't him. They got the wrong person. Of course, they let you go, but they don't give you any apology. There's no, you know... <sighs> And so, oh my gosh, yeah, through this process, you know, it like it just hit me in a different kind of way because people sometimes thought we were twins um, and, you know, same size, same body structure. I mean, 
And I don't know how many times I go out in the house with a black t-shirt and blue jeans, right? And so um, just it just hit me how vulnerable my own body was and how easily I could be picked up. Um, Like, again, you had asked me at the time, oh, yeah, this this proportionally happens. But it was just kind of this thing that happens to other people. But it wasn't, you know, that real. All of a sudden, it became very real. um, And I felt very vulnerable. And it kind of just woke me up in a different kind of way to how pressing of an issue this was when it hits your own family, right? Yeah. And then what you begin to realize is that, you know, not only has it hit my family, but um, almost every single African-American family, directly or indirectly, is impacted by this because it's just a huge number of African-Americans that are being um, targeted in their own communities, you know, by the kind of policing that's done, that is done differently, right, in black communities than usually in most white communities. Uh, and this is absolutely pandemic. I mean, I know you shared a lot of other, you know, examples that I think, like you said, and even yourself, a lot of people think that this is a problem out there. And I think what's implicit in that is we must think that there's a reason that that's happening to those people. That's in some kind of way their fault. And what we've got to realize is that's just not true, that there's a lot more going on here. And um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on this narrative that I think a lot of us have swallowed that, that is incredibly problematic, that we're somehow post-racial right, in this right. nation. That, yeah, that's, I mean, people want to really kind of believe that we're post-racial. I always am curious when people even make such, such suggestions when they think exactly that happened, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, was it, you know... Um, cause I think a lot of people want to tie it to Martin Luther King somehow. So was it like during his, I have a dream speech, which wouldn't really make much sense. Cause obviously all the other things that happened in his life. Um, so maybe somehow like magically in 1968 when he's killed, right. Racism just dies with him. I don't know. You know, I'm not sure exactly, um, when exactly people imagine that it happened, but they just imagine that suddenly, um, racism without people having intentionally worked through these issues and have, you know, done the hard work of self-examination and considering their own lives and practices and the practices of the community and changing their own habits that magically suddenly just stopped. And, and so I think, you know, we underestimate the power and the inertia of race and racism in our society. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. I think when, um, but it, but it, it, I think, at least on the positive, there is this desire, right? Or this awareness that we've had this ugly past and we want to move beyond it. But it's also, you know, a, a cheap way out of the process of actually groping through and working through it. We just kind of want to deny it and almost like a two-year-old cover our ears and our eyes and, you know, just pretend that it doesn't exist anymore. And if we believe it strong enough, then that's the case. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think the one thing that, that you just hit on that I would love for you to expand on is, is you make this distinction in the book that really uh, just was uh, very powerful to me. And that is this idea that um, this distinction between traditional view of racism, almost like this very overt racism that we see in movies, you know, like uh, KKK, these crazy rednecks in robes that are staying in the front yard burning crosses versus today where, where because we don't see as much overt racism Typically, uh, we just think, oh, it, it doesn't happen. So we ex- excuse away kind of these more subtle forms of racism without uh, sometimes without even realizing it. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit and kind of talk about that. 
Yeah, so I often kind of think of it in terms of um, framing it in terms of the different um, ways that we can even define and talk about racism. So on one hand, we, I think the most common way of thinking about racism is that overt style. And I often say it's the dictionary definition, right? That if you go to the dictionary, you're probably going to find, you know, a definition that talks about being overtly prejudiced or discriminatory or hating another race, you know, that kind of language from one person to another. And a lot of it has to do with like what's in your heart, right, towards somebody else. Right. Uh, things that, you know, nobody can prove or measure or anything, you know. Um, so that's on one hand. But but I think so taking the dictionary definition is to look at the common ways that we use the language of race and racism in society. I often say, you know, Google, right? That's a verb now, right? Selfie, that's a verb. You can find these things in the dictionary because that's how we use the language. Not necessarily that it's a brilliant way of using language, it's just <laughs> what we do, right? And so um, and so I think sometimes um, just because it shows up in the dictionary doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way to use a, a word or, or a phrase. On the other hand, if you were to go into the sociology department, right, you're going to find um, more expansive, thorough, thick definitions of race than this kind of thin definition that you find in the dictionary. So you're going to find stuff that looks at um, systemic and structural realities and widespread patterns that are shaping our world. And 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 you're going to have books that are written um, exploring how exactly race develops within the West, right? And particularly in the United States, um, how exactly ideas around whiteness and blackness yeah. um, they emerge when our society and how we've been socialized into these ideas and that they're not actually natural, right? That they're not actual scientific biological categories, but instead they're actually um, ideas that we constructed, right? And began to believe about humanity. We, we categorize people into a hierarchy of thinking about people as, you know, superior, more good, right, beautiful, or uh, inferior, criminal, um, you know, pathological, whatever it is. Yeah. And so I think having a broader, thicker definition of racism helps us see um, that race is actually happening a lot more than we might expect. And it's precisely not the overt burning of the cross, but the subtle systemic stuff that is actually probably more scarring, right? Mm, yes. Constant living in a society that devalues your humanity um, and that um, creates obstacle after obstacle uh, for people, you know, that is some of the more damaging stuff that kills you slowly, right? right. Yes. Or, or sometimes I call it the paper cuts um, that really get at you um, ongoing. And so, yeah, we can get upset about when somebody uses the N-word, um, but what happens when, uh, you know, a system treats you like the N-word, right? When it when it assumes that you don't belong, that you're not qualified, um, that you know you're second class and all that you do, and so I think that those are the ways that we need to begin to have more consciousness around um, the new different ways in which race lives on in our society, especially in the 21st century, right? Where although maybe today someone might argue that. In, in, in recent news, there's been a lot of stuff around like nooses and I don't know if you've heard some of these stories around like kids putting nooses around other kids in the schools and things like that. So yeah. there are some uh, oh, over things that are coming back, right? Um, because the rhetoric is there and alive and it's a little more acceptable in, the, in our historical moment. But in general, um, the more subtle stuff is just as dangerous, though 
though it's it's a softer, quieter, more supposedly civil way of going about racism. Yeah. Said you are choking me, and he cried out, I cannot breathe. Did your heart break? Does your heart break now? So I, I think the, the next logical place that I, I would really like to go is I, I, I just really think that the work you're doing right now, we've talked about this in, uh, before we got it, got started recording, but I think what you're doing is extraordinarily uh, important right now. Um, obviously, uh, in your book, you mentioned a lot of examples, as Adam referenced earlier, to uh, different horrific incidents that we've had over the last year that have really brought our issues as a, as a nation, as a society, with race uh, to the surface. And I, I, we talked to, about kind of almost jokingly that we almost wish you didn't have to write this book. Yeah. You know, we didn't, right. it, it shouldn't be necessary. And yet it is. Um, it, it just unfortunately exists at this point as a Christian. Um, I've got to tell you, I've seen a lot of things over the last year, uh, just aside from being a human being that have absolutely made me sick to my stomach. Um, you know, between the, the racially motivated shootings, the, you know, the political climate that we find ourselves in, um, just the, the the sheer amount of hatred that we see, um, and, and it often dis, it's often discouraging. I think for a lot of us who thought that we had made you know some steps forward in terms of progress, it's like have we really made any progress at all? Mm, that's a good point. Um, and, and so one of the things that I thought was interesting, though, as I read your book, though, and, and it's a perspective that I didn't really think about, is you talk about the difference uh, or, or about the fact rather that that racism is not a horizontal structure. Right. Uh, and you and you talk about just the the structure that's in place within society uh, that that basically ensures that that minorities and and whites in particular are not on a level playing field. So I was wondering if you could kind of go into that, dive into that a little bit. I think that is hugely important. Yeah, and so I mean, I'll, I'll use the example I use in the book, which is you know I, I had a conversation with. Um, a white pastor. He's kind of um, a pastor over, I guess you could say it's a white millennial congregation outside of Philadelphia. Um, pretty popular, growing fast, you know. And and so um, he reached out to me wanting to just kind of connect and swap stories. And so we did. And we happened, we went to the same seminary. So we knew a few common people and we just, you know, kind of shared our stories. And then partway through all of a sudden, um, we're at like this McDonald's in the middle of the afternoon and we're drinking these sweet teas from McDonald's. You know, I always joke about the the sugar gritting through your teeth and, you know, you're having that real Southern sweet tea. So, um, <laughs> so we're enjoying ourselves. It was a hot summer day. And anyway, and so there we are. And as we're talking, he suddenly grabs one of the cups and he puts it between us. And he's like, Drew, you see this cup and he's like, you know, on my side of the cup, you know, there's just a, you know, a logo and your side has writings and I can't see what's on your side of the cup and you can't see what's on my side of the cup. And, and so I'm kind of like, okay, this is interesting. You know, I don't know where he's going next. But I, <laughs> yeah. And so he kind of keeps going, you know, and he says, you know, I need you to help me see what's on 
your side of the cup and you need me to help see what's on my side of the cup. And so, you know, I was like, oh, this is a really cute gesture. That he's <laughs> really nice, you know. Yeah. Um, so I let him finish. But then I, I said to him, I said, you know, that's nice. But, you know, it doesn't actually work like that. That's not how real life works. This is not just some little cross-cultural exchange program that we need to go through to uh, kind of solve the race problem. That's just uh, not it's a missing the point altogether if we think that that's really what all that needs to happen. So I continue. I said, you know, the reality is I already know what's on your side of the cup. Um, I said, you know, when I grew growing up, like even in black communities, like I've had mostly white teachers and I've had to learn about white literature and, you know, white history and European history and figures and, you know, poetry and, you know, white intellectual thought and everything, right? You know, like that is just a part of my life. And going to college, I went, you know, I was the only black male on my floor. I had to navigate that space and make sense of it. Um, even today, like I go and I speak and, you know, all different spaces, I have to understand what white people are thinking as they see my black body and how they're interpreting me. Um, and are they receiving what I'm saying? So I have to kind of, you know, navigate and make sense of that. And so, like, I couldn't do what I do had I not um, learned how to navigate white dominant culture. Right. Like, that's just a part of it. It's inevitable that I couldn't do what I do without doing that. But then I said to him, because, you know, he's he's actually um uh, a fairly well, like he's an author and has done well and he speaks and travels some himself. And so, you know, he, I said, I was like, you know, the truth is that you don't have to enter into my worlds, right? You can go your whole entire life, never step foot in African-American community, never read an African-American author, not learn about black intellectual thought or history, poetry, art, whatever, um, you know, like you can avoid all of black community and culture your whole entire life and you can still thrive. You can be successful. Your your boss is not going to ask you if you know if you have or have not done that, most likely, depending on most jobs. Right. That that's rarely a, 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 a prerequisite for, you know, having access in American society. And so the reality is that, you know, race, while we would like to think of it as just this little cultural back and forth, this horizontal exchange that needs to happen, in reality, it's uh, we're not seeing that there's actual power dynamics at play, right? That our society is structured in a way in which whiteness, um, there's white dominance, right? In our society, in our structures, in our education systems, in our churches, right? Conferences, all these things. Um, and so, to begin to be honest about that and to be honest about the hierarchy, right? That that certain things are valued more than others, that that um, white authors are, tend to be more valued than black authors. And, and this is also in the church, right? White theologians are more valued than black theologians. Very rarely are black theologians, um, other than maybe on a very few range of topics, sought out and, and considered, you know, in terms of uh, the life of the church and what it means to, you know, be disciples of Jesus and follow God and yield to the spirit, right? Our, our opinions, um, despite people often probably think, oh yeah, there's some richness there. Most people don't really value those perspectives and those insights. And so I guess what I want people to understand then, as you kind of highlight this idea around um, thinking about race as primarily a horizontal issue um, in which we just need to have more proximity with one another, it, that misses it altogether, right? Yes. I have to say like, Think about um, relationships, like if, if proximity fixed everything, right, then um, then how does the slave 
that lives within the slave master's house. How does that work, right? This African enslaved person who cooks, cleans, cares for the kids. This is intimate, right? This is not only close proximity. This is intimate kind of relationships that are happening there, but they're happening within a racial hierarchy, right? Uh. It's the closeness of those relationships still, it doesn't disrupt the hierarchy that's in place. And so just getting people together side by side, um, while that's nice, and certainly that's not a bad thing, right? We certainly want fruitful dialogue and connection, but unless we're breaking down the racial hierarchy and unless we're examining and breaking down and deconstructing the power dynamics in our relationships, then we're kind of missing it all together about what race is, what's really happening with race. So, okay, I question, and I might be way off here, um, I, and I think you, I know you touch on this, but I, I'm drawing a correlation here that uh, this, this horizontal is almost like a sleight of hand. It's almost like, hey, don't look at that over there. Don't look at this vertical power structure that we are all living in. And it's been set up from a long time ago and it's carried forward and it's never been challenged. It's only been invested in. It's only been reinforced. It's only been retold. Don't worry about that over there. Let's talk about how we're all the same and let's talk about how it's all okay. And let's talk about, it's almost like the response to the Black Lives Matter with the All Lives Matter. Well, no crap, All Lives Matter. But by (laughs) saying that, you're just asking me to stop having that conversation because you don't want to talk about what's actually going on. Am I extrapolating here or? No, 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 no. You're right on the money. So, uh, I mean, so it's like, you know, that's why I think there's a lot of black theologians that get suspicious when white theologians jump straight to unity and reconciliation without wanting to address justice, right? And the actual... Uh, supremacy and oppression that shape our lives, right? Oh my so, gosh. So there's a danger. It, it, it's suspicious. Like what's, you know, I, I don't know, back in the 90s, they had the promise keepers, right? And so oh. <laughs> this whole thing where, you know, white men, you know, they go around and hugging black men and everyone <laughs> feels good. It's this emotional thing, but nobody's committed to undoing the oppressive obstacles that shape and organize people's lives. And so, you know, we can't, we can't ignore, right, uh, to jump straight to the horizontal and just want the relationship without disrupting the the uneven power dynamics that shape our relationships and shape the way that we come together, I think is not only dishonest, I mean, I think it's unfaithful to the way of Jesus. And I think that we have to name that and, and be honest about that because um, if we really want shalom, right, if we really want um, then it's got to be a much more holistic, comprehensive way of thinking about it. I often say that like the racial segregation in terms of the way that we organize our lives, that's just the natural outflow of racial hierarchy, right? That that's just the way that you, then that's the secondary move that that's the consequences of it. Right. Um, But that's not the heart of it. If I, if we were to look at, um, you know, the 1950 people look, look back and they're like, Oh no, so terrible. You got, you know, white water fountain and a black water fountain. And they think like, that's the heart of it. Right. No, that we think that that the sitting in the back of the bus or the water fountains like that's that's the periphery of what's going on. The heart of it was this white supremacy that dominated and tried to keep black people in their place. Right. That's the heart of it. The terrorism. That was the heart of it. Um, the the water fountains. If that was the heart of it, then we were over complaining. I'm sorry. That's all <laughs> that's going on. Right. If the, if we were so horrified because there were two different water fountains and bathrooms or whatever, then we were over. But if that's just the symptom 
of a much deeper problem, right? White supremacy yeah. um, and, and anti-blackness and keeping black people in their place, then I think then we, we're on to something much um, more significant. Can we just, before, I know John's got like some crazy good questions here and he's drawing a point on this thing, but like for people that are new to this conversation, can we just um, quickly just define a little terminology here? We A couple, yeah. a couple things that we've said, we've, we've talked about racial um, society or racialized society. Can we just get a little definition of that? And then like just whiteness versus yeah. blackness. Th- those are very charged terms in this conversation. I just want to make sure people are clear. Yeah. So racialized society. Uh, so that's a language I use to try to just describe the way that in some ways you could say the, the way that we remade the world, right, um, by race. Um, and so that race organizes our lives in society and frequently unconsciously. So so, I'm not, so when I say racialized society is just the way that we just kind of operate now so that, you know, most people just intuitively know that they belong in certain spaces and don't belong in certain spaces. Sure. They belong alongside of certain bodies and not alongside of other bodies, right? Go to certain churches and not other churches, right? There's race is actually, uh, it's a mechanism that is actually organizing our lives. Yeah. It has us, you know, maybe picking up certain books and not picking up other books that are our bookshelves, right? I mean, are often deeply racialized. Just something so simple as re- what books we read and what books we don't read. Um, expose how deeply racialized we are. And I think that, you know, most of us, you know, we don't think of ourselves like that because it's not intentional. It's not like people are going out and saying, like, I'm going to only, you know, hang out with my people, you know, from yeah. my back, uh, racial background. No one's, most people, maybe if you're like a white supremacist, like, hey, <laughs> maybe you're doing like that. But most people, that's not their intention. And I, I think in some ways, I think we're even horrified to even think of our own lives like that, to think that we've been, puppeted almost by race, right? But in some ways, it's just true um, that, that you know, our associations, who who comes around our dinner table and in our, you know, and maybe who's on our social media feeds, I don't know, whatever, like, I'm often much, often much more racialized than we would like to admit and realize. Um, but when we step back and do some self-examination around our lives, around our communities, around our mindsets um, and our assumptions, um, we realize that we, uh, our lives, our minds, our society is deeply racialized much more than we um, ever imagined. Um, and so, but I think it's freeing to at least realize that because then then you can actually begin to transform your life, right? And live differently and not be patterns um, along these racial lines. So that's, that's what I mean when I say racialized society. Um, when we talk about whiteness and blackness, I guess the starting point is to say that, you know, race is a social construct. Um, oftentimes we kind of forget that, right? That, that if you go back, if you talk to, you know, St. Augustine, well, he was from North Africa, right? But he, you, if you told him he was black, he wouldn't know what you were talking about, right? Um, <laughs> and if you talk to most, you know, if you someone that's German or Italian or Irish or and you told them that they're white, you know, in, in the 1400s, most of them would not know what in the world, they, not most of them, none of them would know what you're talking about, right? Man. <laughs> white. Because that's not what, you know, they had much more specific identities based off of the different regions and lands and communities that they were a part of, but it certainly wasn't white. Um, whiteness is a much more recent um, invention in some ways. You could say that race in some kind of weird ways maybe has some earlier precedents, 
um, but whiteness and blackness in and of itself, they emerged during the during modernity and enlightenment. Um, you have folks like um, Immanuel Kant and other the supposedly great uh, enlightenment thinkers who are yeah they're they're philosophizing and they're looking out into the world and and they're so confident that they're so objective and that they can you know rank humanity right um, through what they think is an objective scientific view and so they look and you know clearly Western Europeans are clearly at the top of the world and superior more beautiful and intelligent and objective than everybody else and and all the way at the bottom of the hierarchy are Africans right who are clearly the anti, the opposites of Europeans. And then you have all different kinds of rankings and some folks rank it slightly different, but in general, there's this ranking which Europeans are at the top and, and Africans are at the bottom. And so this idea eventually emerges of whiteness and blackness, right? Um, so when I say whiteness and blackness, whiteness, it's it's a belief, it's an ideology. And it's also, so it's, a, it's, well, it's multiple. It's an identity, right, that, that people accept. So, for example, um, uh, you look in the early 20th century and um, you have, like, um, Irish and Italian immigrants coming into the United States um, and you have them um, trying to prove, and, and initially they're not seen as white, right? That's the irony is that Irish and Italian immigrants initially were not white, Um and it's because at the center of whiteness was to be Anglo-Saxon Protestants, right? right. Uh, but but eventually that it it's malleable, right? Race is not as fixed as we like to think it is. It changes and it, it makes room for them. And so all of a sudden now, you know, they have white status in society, right? And then you have uh, Asian immigrants in the early 20th century going to court, actually trying to apply and sue for white status in society. Some oh, are saying, wow. saying, look, I'm Caucasian. According to your own category, you say Caucasian is white. Well, well, technically Indian is Caucasian, so I should have white status. And they're like, no, 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 no. You know that's not what we mean, right? Um, oh, my gosh. Because they're dark-skinned, right? So clearly that can't be it. And then you have like this oh. Japanese-American who's like fair-skinned, who's like, look, I've got fair skin then. Certainly then I can, I'm white. No, 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 no. We know common sense what we mean when we say white people, right? And so you have all these different court cases going on. Um, sometimes where some of them get white status and then it's taken back and oh, you have all these issues, but you show all of a sudden that whiteness on one hand, it's malleable, but on the other hand, it's very valuable, right? People are not coming to America and saying, I want to, I want black status, right? No one came to America and like, I need to be identified as black in the world, right? No, because that would have been, you know, horrible for them in terms of their access and their mobility in society. But to be identified with whiteness was to be valuable. But it was, but it's the projection, right? It's an idea that they want, that they, and so it took, people had to um, let go of their heritage and culture. So many people anglicized their last names, right? So there's a denial of the particularity of their European identities yes. to enter into this contract, right, of whiteness. Um, so it, it's an identity. It's an ideology and it's a performance, right? It's a way of being in the world um, and a way of thinking in the world and navigating society in a particular way. And so um, all of that together, that's what I mean when I say whiteness. It's, it's either, or let me add one more thing. It's, it, it, can be, it can be a way of living into social dominance, but it can also, and I think this is important, right? 
Because I think when you think about poor white folks, it can also be a way of psychological superiority. Yes. At the same time that in many ways it's going at your own disadvantage, right? Poor white folk who oftentimes are just as exploited as anybody else in many in many categories um, hold on to the psychological sense of superiority, even among people who maybe, at least in class-wise, have a lot of things in common with them, right? Um, now, I guess that you could say that they're always holding out because there's a certain amount of access that they can still have, right, and move and, and, and take advantage of. But the concrete everyday lived experiences in terms of exploitation, often they're experiencing in, in deep ways also. And so there's the irony, I think, of, of how whiteness operates for different folks in different ways. Um, blackness, and I mean, on one hand, you could talk about blackness in terms of um, um, the projection of dominant society onto black bodies, right? Or we could say the stereotype, right? Um, this is telling people who they are, right? You're inferior, you're lazy, you don't work. These are the things, you're criminal, right? Um, so it's a projection onto black bodies. I mean, the same way I talk about, you know, navigating spaces and people often before they're getting to know me, they assume that I'm dangerous or scary, right? Um, and so like, it's that projection um, is a stereotype. But blackness is also, um, uh, in, in a strange way, there's a non-racial way of talking about blackness, right? Yeah. It's a, the resistance, right? It's a claiming, it's using the language of race, but pushing back to affirm one's humanity and say, no, blackness is all the different ways of us navigating our humanity in this world, in a racialized world, right? Um, how we dare to be human in an anti-black society, right? That that is also a way in which people also talk about blackness. Um, so not necessarily in the racial sense, but just in the cultural human sense of living um, and daring to live while acknowledging that you have a racially identified body, right? Um, and what that means, yeah. So mad right now. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, I, one, one of the questions I, I definitely wanted to get in, um, it, and, and I think was really pointing for me as I was reading this book, is uh, just because it's a term that's been fairly prevalent is this idea of race card. And the way that you explain it um, because I think a lot of instances that's something that, that, uh, the, the white dominated society tends to kind of brush off like, oh, and, and, and I've unfortunately heard this in, in, in witnesses myself in society. It's like, oh, they're just playing the race card, you know, it's, oh, you know, uh, kind of dismissing things that are occurring. And, and the way that you explain it, I think is really interesting. So I was wondering if you could kind of touch on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that, you know, because we have a society that doesn't want to take account of our racial history, right? 400 years of white supremacy, right? And so instead of dealing with the actual racism and the actual racial oppression and injustice, um, there's it's a unique rhetorical strategy in which um, it there's this way of shaming those who are pointing out racism in society, Right. Let's not deal with the racism. Let's deal with the people point, pointing out the racism. And so um, there's this shaming strategy. And so, you know, playing the race card or, um, you know, calling people race baiters and agitators and all that stuff, which ironically, Martin Luther King was also called all those things as well. Right. He's yeah. called these side agitators and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, and so those are the people that are the problem. Um, it's not racism itself. The problem It's 
people who keep talking about it, right? Uh, and so the way that I talk about it then is to say, all right, so let's enter into this language of the race card and, and kind of play it out all the way and think about what it means. And so I guess the best way I approach it is to say that imagine that we have a deck of cards and you, you know, you spread out this deck of cards on a table um, and you, you know, you begin to look at all the different patterns, right? You got four Kings, four Queens, four Jacks, you know, you see all the different patterns and spades and aces and all of that. And so, you know, you, you make sense of how the deck works and what patterns there are, this broader picture beyond just any one individual card. And so, when you put all the cards back together, then you take out any one card, you know how it fits within the larger deck, right? You can kind of make sense of it. Um, and I, I kind of compare that to how often the African-American community often responds to race and racism in society. That, you know, um, when when we see a, you know, police brutality and someone getting shot down on a video, you know, we're basing, you know, our response not just based on that isolated incident. In some sense, we're making sense of a whole long history in which out of our four almost 400 years of history of being on this land as as African descended people, there's not a decade in which there hasn't been brutality against black bodies, right? There's never been a moment in which that hasn't been a constant reality for black people here in this country. And not only can we go all the way back, but we hear, we've heard the stories of our great-grandparents and our grandparents and our parents, and then our peers and our own experiences, I mean, and the experiences of those in our community and churches. And so all of a sudden we have this widespread, you know, experiences that we're drawing from, and we're kind of making sense of all of it together. And then you kind of put it all together and you take a look at any one individual incidents, right? And it begins to make sense, right? Uh, in light of everything else. And so it's not I have to say it's not playing the race card, right? Um, I often say that, if anything, um, usually it's people in white dominant culture that are playing the race card. They're taking one isolated incident and they want to make assumptions and determine whether what we know about it and if we have enough information or not. Um, But they refuse to look at our history and they refuse to look at the widespread realities of our society. Um, And so for me, they're playing the race card. And if anything, what we're doing is we're analyzing the racialized deck. And what I say is that we know that the deck has always been stacked against us. And so we have a different vantage point um, than just merely playing any race card. Man. For a podcast that is about challenging implicit bias, challenging subconscious or unconscious bias this may be the most important episode that we've done because that's that's all we're talking about right now yeah and it matters so much more than um just philosophical concepts or theological concepts or this matters i i like that um this conversation i i hear you say it a lot and i've heard others say it too like instead of just saying you know, the black community or minorities, like you keep saying black bodies, because that, that draws us back to the fact that these are, these are flesh and blood, real people. And this conversation really, really, really matters, man. Yeah. I think, um, to be, to be, uh, uh, sensitive to your time, I think, uh, the, the last question, I think, 
Um, we, and by the way, we would absolutely love to have you back. I, I think, um, I think uh, we've just started tapping into some of the questions that we have and some of the, some of the conversation starters, I think that, that are very necessary uh, right now. So uh, if you'd be interested, we would absolutely love to do this again sooner than yeah. later, I think. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's leave the listeners on this one. I think the core of your book, um, because it starts out with a, with a great history lesson and, 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 and great ways of, of looking at different perspectives and, and really focusing on, on the true issues. Um, so when you get into some of the solutions, it, it comes down to Jesus and, and, and you really base it around, um, just examining this, uh, the, the life of Christ and, and, and viewing that as kind of the solution, uh, to this all. And, and so I wondered if you could kind of touch on that a little bit and, uh, maybe we'll just give listeners a taste and then, uh, dive into that more, maybe perhaps the next time. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I would say, uh, you know, I, I agree with Howard Thurman that um, Jesus, um, he was somebody that lived on the margins of society. He was a, a poor Jew living under occupation, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and and that his message is first and foremost to an oppressed people, right? Yes. And that, um, and that we got to see and understand that way. And so starting with that assumption, you know, I really take seriously um, the kind of radical life that Jesus lived. Um, I mean, I, you know, the one chapter I, I spend a lot of time looking at Luke 13, 31 to 35, where, you know, Jesus starts off, well, you know, the, these Pharisees come to Jesus and they're warning him like, yo, get out of here. Cause Pharaoh, uh, Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus is like, he gets defiant, right? He's like, yo, go tell that Fox. Right. And so he calls Herod. A <laughs> um, and I often joke, like, you know, Jesus didn't think he was cute and sexy when he said that, or <laughs> yeah. really intelligent. Um, at that time, to call someone a fox, it, you know, in Hebrew literature, it could have meant a few things. It could either mean that he was small and insignificant as a figure, that he was um, uh, predatorial, right, in his nature, and that one would be deceptive. And so any of those are negative, right? That Jesus is kind of calling him out and trying to unveil something about the kind of leadership that Herod engages in. Um, but to define um, leadership from below, right? Jesus is coming from the underside, from the grassroots, um, and basically says, I'm going to keep going and I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to clash, right? And basically y'all going to have to kill me, right? Because um, this kingdom movement is taking place. Mm. And so I think that, you know, there's a really revolutionary way of, um, beginning to see Jesus and the kind of life that he engaged in. Um, and I think that it's deeply liberating, right? To oh really gosh, yeah. see, see Jesus's life um, and understand the relationship that he had. I mean, he was, I often say, look, Jesus, if he didn't understand the black experience, I mean, he had a cousin that was executed by the authorities. And then he himself is grabbed at night, put through an unfair trial, goes through police brutality and gets a state-sanctioned execution. I mean, he understands what a lot of Black folk are dealing with as subjects, right, of the state and the kind of brutality against Black bodies that goes on all the time in our society. Um, so on one hand, he he can deep, we can deeply identify as Black people um, with the own experiences that Jesus had in his own body, right? Um, but then more than that, um, that that, you know, he provides an avenue for us to kind of, all of us, to kind of break 
out of this, right? That we can take serious the way of Jesus, um, and that if through that we can find a kind of non a nonconformity to the racialized world that we live in, um, that we can reject, as Jesus says, you know, um, lording over others, right, and finding a different way of of being together, um, and truly trying to find a life together that honors the way of Jesus and the kind of kingdom community that He sought to inaugurate. And so I think you know, there's a lot of hope. I think a lot of people haven't realized how powerful Jesus is in terms of offering us um, a counter ethic and politic to the racialized world that we live in, um, that we can do life together, that we can struggle against these forces. And it's not a choice between our faith and, you know, um, anti-racism work is that to follow Jesus is to be anti-racist, right? Amen. Is unsettling the hierarchy and status quo of our world. And so I think um, that's a hopeful message for all of us. Oh gosh. And uh, I I know I, for one could use a little hope right now. And and I think a lot of our listeners could too. And um, thank you so much for being on the show before we let you go though. Um, Tell people a little bit about where, where they can go to find your work and uh, where's the best place to pick up this book. Cause I have a feeling a few people are going to want to get out there and get that. Yeah. So um, let's see. Well, I teach at Messiah college. So if you ever know anybody that wants to study at Messiah college, um, you can send them our way. I, I uh, write at Christian century. My blog is called um, uh, taking Jesus seriously. And I also blog periodically at the Mennonite. And um, you can find me on Twitter at Drew Hart, D-R-U-H-A-R-T, also on Facebook and wherever else I'm working on at the time. Uh, But the book, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, you can find that pretty much anywhere books are sold. You can go straight to Herald Press, which is the publisher. You can go to Amazon. You can go to Barnes and Nobles. You can go anywhere and you should be able to find the book. And they actually have a really cool, which I haven't even... I've um, gotten my hands on, but there's a cool hardback copy of the book now because it started off in soft and they actually added the hardback after. The yeah. Second. Oh, man. I got the Just soft cover. Check it out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. Well, well, everybody needs to get this book. Yeah. And um, we just couldn't have been in better hands than with you tonight recording this. Um, thank you so much for the work you're doing, for uh, how Jesus has shaped your work, for um, just the way you approach all of this. I appreciate it so, so much. Uh, I appreciate that a lot. It's been a lot of fun talking with both of you. Well, we, we can't wait to talk with you again very soon. We, and, got, uh, we got some more ground to cover, man. Yeah, I think so. We just tapped the tip of the iceberg on that one. <laughs> Thank you again. Thanks for being with us tonight. All right. Thanks. All right. I'm 28 years old, and I live in Columbus, Ohio, and um, this actually happened to me the day or the morning of the presidency being announced, and I was at the gas station um, getting gas before taking my daughter to school, and um, I was pumping gas. I let the gas 
you know, fill up my gas tank. I actually left the pump inside of the, um, inside of my car, you know, while, while it was pumping, I went inside, um, got a few things from the gas station. Me and my daughter came back. I put her in the car. And as I was walking around to pull the gas pump out of uh, my car, a, um, a white male in a big, like, pickup truck, he pulled up behind me and he started slamming his hands down on my trunk, screaming, um, racial slurs. How do you like bringing white back into the White House? How do you like that? Take that in words. Just constantly yelling the N-words, slapping his hands on my trunk. My daughter was screaming and crying. Um, I didn't say anything to him because I was afraid. I didn't know what he might do um, other than bang on my car. So I hurried up, put the pump back into the gas thing, and ran around the front of my car, got into my car, locked it, started the car, and pulled off. Um, my daughter was crying. Um, I didn't you know, get a license plate or do any of that. I just kind of wanted to get away from the situation. Um, and I've never really had anything like that happen to me. Um, it was hurtful, and it was also hurtful for that to take place with my daughter in the car. And he could see my daughter screaming and crying, so that upset me even more for someone to do that while there was a child in the car. Um, but I just explained to my daughter while taking her to school that um, this type of thing does exist. You kind of want to be the bigger person and walk away. Um, but definitely it was a scary experience for me, and I never want to have to experience that again or have my daughter experience that. And that's my story. I am a hairstylist out of Akron, Ohio. I have been in this industry for 12 years. I have worked for the number one hair color company for five years. And uh, throughout those years, I've worked with some of the most well-known stylists in the country. I have been able to build my clientele just from my experience. And uh, through my clientele, I receive a lot of referrals. Um, I recently received a referral that walked in and uh, she asked to have a consultation with me. Um, I don't believe that my client told her that I was an African-American and this woman was white. Um, she questioned if I was capable of doing her hair after giving her my full resume. After I reassured her that I knew what I was doing, uh, she then decided to go elsewhere. Um, with my advertisement, I do not put my profile photo for the re for these reasons. Uh, people assume that because I am African American, I don't know how to do all textures of hair. Um, so based off of just my work alone, I've been able to build a uh, multicultural clientele. Um, this experience happened to me, I want to say, the summer of 2016. Through building my clientele, I've been able to build relationships with my clients. Uh, some of them I see weekly. One of them is an African-American woman who has two African-American sons. One of her sons uh, was out one night and uh, was pulled over by the police. He was not intoxicated. Uh, they then beat him and arrested him, and he was jailed overnight. When she went to pick him up, he told her the story, and she did not believe his side of the story. They told him that he resisted arrest, that he wasn't compliant, um, and she didn't believe him because I think it is the assumption that this wouldn't happen to us. 
And um, unfortunately, they ended up having to go to trial. Um, And their first court appearance was about a month ago, and he pleaded not guilty. At the time of the arrest, they informed her that there was no tape. But during the trial, when he pleaded not guilty, all of a sudden a tape pops up. After reviewing the tape, they then realized that he was beaten and that there was no reason to arrest him. And from then, they uh, dropped the charges. And this happened about a month ago in 2016. Every day we go to war again. We assume we know so much more than them before we hear what they have to say. Headline breaks And we start to hate again Calling them names again We give our peace away I hope they see it Cause I wanna see it I hope we I want to see, I want to see the love all around you, all around you. I want to know, I want to know that love is all around you, it's all
Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.